415 Stories is brought to you by Mobile Action. Make your app business a success with world-class data. Sign up on mobileaction.co and apply the promo code 415 to get 15% off for any plan. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of 415 Stories. I'm your host Tahav. We are having insightful chats with amazing founders and investors from Silicon Valley and San Francisco. And today I have a special guest on the pod. I actually like wanted to talk with her for a while, but I think it is the time. So she has an impressive background with several hats as an operator, as an investor, as an advisor, as a product manager, a board member in different organizations, and also 11 years at Salesforce. And last but not least, I think we can say that your claim to fame presenting the dream pitch. And I loved your energy on the stage while watching you there. And it was actually one of a kind that I couldn't find that much energy in any other pitch contest. So that was great. Without further ado, I want to hear from you. Welcome to Pod Leila. Thank you, Taha. I'm so excited to be here. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you liked Dream Pitch. It was a, that was one of the, I really enjoyed doing that. It was a lot of fun. It was cool. Yeah. It was interesting to watch those companies pitch like that in such a big environment. It was awesome. Yes. Also, like, juries was really famous and people were like, you know, companies were actually pretty qualified, I think. And I really enjoyed watching them. Oh, I'm so happy. That's great. I actually don't have much things to say in the beginning. So let's hear your story. How did you get where you are today? Like, what's the story there? Sure. So um, my parents are foreigners. My mother's Turkish. And my father's Austrian. Um, And so I grew up in Berkeley, California, and went to college and everything. I then, after college, went into Peace Corps. And um, while I was in Peace Corps, the internet happened. So I got back and all my friends were driving Mercedes and I couldn't rent an apartment. Um, And so I lucked out and sort of got into technology as well. I started as a product manager, which I think is a great place to start if you're starting out in your career. Um, you get to be the CEO of the product and sort of see all facets of how it comes to life. So I started out as a product manager early in some smaller companies. And then as time went on, I took on additional responsibility. I had sort of a head for marketing. So I took on some marketing responsibility and some operations. Um, and then eventually I went to Salesforce, where, as you mentioned, I spent over 11 years. Um, I initially went to Salesforce to run the App Exchange. So the App Exchange was about a year old when I joined there. Oh. And still a fairly new concept. The App Store had not been launched yet. So the idea of going online and buying software was still a relatively new one. So I got to be um, sort of the forefront of that at Salesforce and spent sort of the first six years of my career at Salesforce really building the App Exchange and helping people understand that Salesforce was a platform company, not just an SFA company. So I did that for quite a bit of time and then I wanted a new challenge. So I took on running a division of the company called Desk, which provided low-end customer support. Um, So I ran that for a couple of years and then came back to the App Exchange. I think you always end up coming home one point (laughs) or another. So I spent another few years on the App Exchange um, and then ran the mobile suite at Salesforce. So my roots in product always served me well, even as I moved into more forward-thinking business roles. Um, And then about a year ago, I decided to leave Salesforce and um, joined my partner, Malin Yen, and we started a fund called Operator Collective. And what's really interesting about this venture fund um, is the number of LPs and who our LPs are. Normally in a venture fund, you have 
20, 30 LPs and no one ever talks about them and you don't really know who they are. We, we took sort of a different stance. We intentionally recruited over 130 LPs, all of them being operating executives. Um, we saw a real miss in the venture market in that operators who tend to be the people that grow and scale large companies like Salesforce and Slack and Stripe and Gusto um, are often left out of the venture cycle. It's typically the venture capitalists and the founder tend to broker that deal. So we wanted to bring operating executives into venture. Um, and we also wanted to bring more women and underrepresented minorities into venture. So our fund is very unique. Um, of our LPs, 90% of them are women, 40% of them are people of color, 20% of them are immigrants. Um, the, the LP base very much reflects our friends and the people that both Malin and I knew. So uh, it's no surprise that there are so many women and so many different types of people. But the thesis we had running in was that if we could change who was investing in the companies, we could change how the companies grew and became more diverse and open places and really sort of mirrored our society versus being a, just one homogeneous group of people in charge. I'd love to hear more about Operative Collective, but first I want to go back a bit. So you spent years in the same product, App Exchange, in Salesforce. So throughout the years, you say that there were no even app stores. So before end user app stores, there was an enterprise version of that from Salesforce. And throughout many years, what kind of changes you see through innovation that made you change your approach in the market? Like it was the same that when you started, same as when you finished working on that product too? Like what kind of change had been made throughout the years? So yeah, I'm, marketplaces have changed a lot. I mean, when we started the app exchange, you know, the idea was really to help build extensions around Salesforce. And back in that day, there was no public cloud, right? There was no AWS or Google Cloud. Really, if you wanted to build SaaS, you either were building with Salesforce or you were standing up your own data centers. So as we think about how that evolved through time, you know, marketplaces are incredibly hard to build. You have a lot of different people involved. In our case, we had customers that we had to train to go there and look for things when they were looking around augmentation for Salesforce. We had partners that we were bringing on and that we're building businesses on top of our platform and leveraging the app exchange as sort of a marketplace to, to get their, the word out there about what they were doing. And then we had developers, which were also, you know, just constantly looking to extend the platform, extend what they could do. So building one product that serves all of those different user needs is really hard to do. Also, as time changed and AWS came online and other public platforms came online, we had to shift the way the app exchange worked to accommodate our partners and our customers and make sure they could get the value we were looking to build. So it was complicated, but when I think back to how much that helped Salesforce, having all of those applications surrounding the core Salesforce app made it very, very sticky inside of a customer organization such that all of their processes were running through Salesforce or around Salesforce. And that made it really, really hard to think about a world where they weren't using Salesforce now and in the future, which gave us quite an edge as a software company at that point. Let's talk about Operative Collective. You said that there are almost 130 operators inside, right? Yeah, so 130 operators. So we were very intentional. I mean, our objective there was to really change the way venture capital was working. 
Um, up until then, it really was a venture capitalist found a founder. They decided, you know, they got excited about the idea and they invested and off they went. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes those that venture capitalist and that founder tended to be white men. Right. So it was it was participating. It was sort of continuing to make the same thing happen over and over again. Our thesis with Operator Collective was if we can change who the investors are, we can change how the companies move forward in society and how they create mm -hmm. a more equal, you know, a, a company that reflects society more. Um, you know, I'm a woman. I, I rose up in the executive ranks at Salesforce. I've been in product all my life, which is tends to be a pretty male area of the company. Um, mm -hmm. And so I had spent a lot of time noticing how I was the only or, you know, we used to call it the loneliness of being the only or the onlyness, you know, the only woman in the room during an engineering meeting, being the only black person and in a sales meeting, being the only type, one of your type is difficult. And so the premise between Operator Collective really was we want to change who's making the investment decisions in these companies and then subsequently help those founders build more equal and companies that are more representative of the society that we live in. I mean, my mark is always, I want to help create companies that I want my children to work at, that I want my children to work at and feel like they belong in and feel like it's representative of the society they live in. So that very much was a big part of the premise with Operator Collective. So we worked really hard to create a diversified LP base. Um, so, you know, I mentioned earlier, 90% of the LPs are women. I mean, a really interesting point on that is when we were getting ready to launch last year, I did a survey of our, all our LPs and, you know, I asked a question, how many of you have ever invested before? And over 75% of the group came back and said, I've never invested before. And then the next question I asked was, why haven't you invested? If you haven't invested, why haven't you invested? And then this answer really got me. It was like someone socked me in the stomach. They said, um, no one ever asked. And I really thought back to all the time at Salesforce. You know, I worked at Salesforce for a long time. And during my tenure there, we acquired a number of companies. And because I ran the app exchange and the ecosystem, I was, I was involved in a lot of those acquisitions and sort of how we thought about them. And we would bring those companies in and often, you know, the white male founder, you know, sometimes not, but often, mm -hmm. more often than not, the white male founder would come in and stay at Salesforce for about two years. And then they'd cycle out. And when they cycled out, a lot of them went and became venture capitalists. And what I noticed here was um, they'd become venture capitalists and then they'd start calling in to the other male executives at Salesforce and say, hey, join my fund. Hey, do you want to angel invest in this? Hey, come on, get involved with me. But no one was calling me. Right. And I was a product executive. I had made some money. I had some money that I could invest. Um, so, you know, it's it started getting to me because this seemed like just yet another area where income creation was happening and women and underrepresented minorities were being left out of that cycle. So we had um, a couple gentlemen leave who are good friends of mine. And I said, hey, you better call me this time. Like, don't don't just call those guys. And so luckily they called me um, and I invested with them and we made a lot of money. And so for me, you know, I think always I have hearkened back to making things equal. If there's one thing I can't stand, it's when things aren't equal. And that's why you know, in my tenure at Salesforce, I was one of the two women that went to Mark Benioff and said, you're not paying the women the same as the men, which really oh. started the equal pay movement across technology and throughout corporate America to some degree, because Salesforce took such a hard stand on that. 
And my motivation for doing that was that it was very clear to me that things were not being, you know, it was not working, you know, somehow the men were getting more than the women in this. And as I dug more deeply into that, it became pretty evident that um, women were just taught certain behaviors that men weren't. Like, for example, every time I'd gotten a raise or a promotion or a stock grant or a bonus, I had said, thank you. That's how I was taught. I'm Turkish. That's what my mother taught me. That's sort of the way you act. What I noticed as I moved up in time in the company and had male vice presidents reporting to me and female vice presidents reporting to me was that every time I gave one of the male vice presidents a bonus or a promotion or a stock grant, they always said, can I have more? Where the women always said, thank you. So there was sort of some some Mm. things built into the way our society thinks about money and the way women were thinking about their role with money that I wanted to change. So we began that at Salesforce. And then as time went on, I saw another area in venture where women and underrepresented minorities were being left out of that conversation as well. And and the truth is, Taha, in, in the United States, you know, money gives you power here, a lot of it. Right. So if the money and the power always stays with the same homogeneous group of people, nothing's going to change. So really, one of the main tenets of Operator Collective was to shift the wealth creation in venture capital to go to a more diverse group of people and to allow those people to help have a heavy hand in the creation of new companies such that those companies become more welcome, more welcoming for everyone. Yes, I really like your example of this cycle of white males investing in white male founders, just because like I remember like many of the times when I when I was a founder, I was meeting with all those investors and I exactly remember that in an event venue. I asked the venture capitalist who is a white male. He just says that, yes, it is too early. It is blah, blah, blah. Like all the time I got the same answers. But most of the time I see that at those times, a white male founder reaches out to those investors. The response actually is not that the same. And I appreciate it to see that for more than 130 people working in this matter to change that. And I, I'm hopeful that it will change in years. And your main thought and idea was to assemble the operator collective was this and after that you invested in nine companies along with seven other supporting investments so you also say that you are a stage agnostic firm so does that mean that you are going to invest in all sides like proceed to let's say growth rounds or is there a sweet spot that you might be seeing like this is a point that we will be more likely to invest in a startup So we are stage agnostic, like we've done, um, you know, Guild, which is a Series C company, um, and we've done pre-seed companies. So we do really run the gamut. I think more and more we're seeing a lot of companies we're interested in in the seed stage. Um, The way we've created our portfolio, we have room to invest in a number of different things, but there's a lot of high potential stuff going on. You know, I've, I've really thought the pandemic would slow down um, founders and people would stay at big companies and do their big company jobs. But what I'm finding is perhaps it's that people are realizing life is short, but there are a ton of amazing founders starting companies right now and really looking to start different types of companies. I, I really get excited when people seek us out in the investment process, and that's been happening more and more. People are looking to diversify their cap table. They're looking for opinions that are different than the ones they have or the ones they grew up with. 
And I see that as a real good signal that Silicon Valley is waking up a bit to the fact that there's not just one way to do it. There's not one path to success here. There are many paths. Look at mine. I grew up in Berkeley. I was in the Peace Corps. I was a product manager. I raised up at Salesforce. Now I'm an investor. And, and I didn't mean to become a venture capitalist. This was not really on the list of things I was going to do, but it was such a natural extension of the work I've been doing on the app exchange with having built the largest enterprise ecosystem in the world for SaaS that it made a lot of sense. But I do see uh, th there's a shift happening gradually. Nothing, mm -hmm. These shifts never happen as quickly as we would like them to happen. But if I look at All Raise, which is an organization that started really focusing on getting women GPs into roles, um, and Black VC, another organization really focused on bringing Black venture capitalists into more you know, higher roles inside of firms, I see the shift beginning. And I think Operator Collective is a great example of the work that's begun there and how we took it and turned it into, you know, an operating venture capital fund where we can deploy, you know, the money and, and, and almost more than the money, our skill set. Mm -hmm. You know, I have scaled a business from zero to a billion. Not that many people have done that, right? And a lot of other people in our portfolio have done unbelievably amazing things, built unicorns built, you know, built the next, uh, built giant companies like Google. You know, there's a lot of different expertise in our mm -hmm. base, which if you think about a founder, you're so busy, right? You were a founder. Being a founder is so much work. You're running around, you're trying to build the product, you're trying to raise money, you're trying to hire people. So having a base of people that you can go to that have done it before, that will give you prudent and sage advice, and who also are interested in your success because they're invested in it, makes a really interesting model. So we've found great success, not only in the companies that we're investing in, but also in the engagement of our LP base with those companies. Um, our LPs want to help. They want to learn. They want to understand better how to get these companies to the next stage. And they're not afraid to do the work to help those companies get there. So we we really are very lucky. I could, every day I consider myself incredibly lucky to be able to do this and to work with all these amazing people and really try to think about what do the next 10 years of technology look like? You know, for a lot of my career, I, I really was like, what we're doing is amazing. It was so, we were so on the cutting edge of everything, you know, <laughs> not developing software that has to be delivered once a year to an FTP site or a gold CD. You know, that was a huge moment in time when we started just deploying straight to the customer. Um, and that was so long ago. So when I think about what the next 10 years of technology look like, the innovation, potentially even especially because of COVID and, and some of the, you know, the situation we find ourselves in in the world, the innovation is really spectacular and there can be so much of it. But innovation done without a view towards the whole population is not that innovative. Those stages is agnostic, as you said, but you heavily, I think, investing in B2B and enterprise startups. So is that all we do? Yes. Is that a reason that 130 operators was experienced in those areas? Or you said that this is our focus in a way that in everyone's interest? So my partner, Malin, and I really set that focus. Now, if you look across our LP base, it is true that a lion's share of them are enterprise B2B SaaS executives. Mm -hmm. But really, that was more Malin and mine sweet spot, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Malin helped build Saster, which is one of the, you know, probably the largest enterprise SaaS conferences in the world and definitely a place where a lot of people go to get great information. 
And, and my experience building the app exchange, you know, for 12 years, almost 12 years, I saw every single enterprise SaaS application that wanted to come online had to talk to me at one point. So that developed some pretty severe pattern recognition for me, as far as what kind of companies are going to do well, what kind of companies maybe aren't making so much sense. So it really made a lot of sense for us to stick with what we knew. We grew up in enterprise B2B SaaS. Um, I, it wouldn't make a lot of sense for me to go start investing in consumer. You know, that's not an area where I have a deep bench of knowledge, nor does, you know, Malin's not really Malin's sweet spot either. So we really optimized for what we knew and for looking for the companies that were going to help define the next generation of enterprise B2B SaaS applications. By the way, how's your founder and LP relations like? Just because in most of the VC firms, we do not see much more LP and founder interaction just because they are almost uh, not announced. Due to you have 130 operators, does those founders having access to the expertise of these people or... You just have associates or some kind of resources. So they do. I mean, listen, we did something very different with our fund. Most funds don't even tell you who their LPs are. I'm an LP in a number of funds. No one has any idea, right? It's never discussed. We wanted to turn that on its head too. All of our LPs are listed on our website. That was a very intentional move. We wanted to demystify who the LPs were. And also, in our opinion, our LPs are part of our greatest asset, right? So we wanted to make sure we highlighted them. The companies that we invest in do get access to our LPs. Now, a lot of our LPs are running giant companies or huge divisions. And, you know, but if there is something specific, like I had a CEO of one of our portfolio companies reached out today and said, I really want to talk to this woman. You know, she, I need some marketing expertise. She's brilliant. I'd love half an hour with her. So I called her and said, hey, would you be willing to chat with him? And of course she was. So clearly we do open the door quite a bit to our LP base for our companies where and if it makes sense. We also are protective of the LPs, right? We don't bother them every five minutes because they have full-time jobs and families and life and all that stuff. But the whole intention of the fund was to make it so that founders had a one-stop shop when it came to like, I have a sales question. Great. I have an engineering question. Great. I have a biz ops question. Great. We have a long bench of different types of people that can help our founders think through those problems. And often the founder doesn't need more than half an hour on the phone with someone to get a ton of great ideas and help them sort of decide the right direction going forward. So yeah, the LP beast is very active. And also they help us a lot with diligence. Yeah, you know, there's, there's nothing better than asking the person who might buy the software you're considering investing in if they think it's a good investment. Right. That's a pretty, pretty slam dunk way of knowing whether or not something might make sense. And so we feel very lucky and honored that we have this amazing group of people, mostly women, admittedly, that are available to our companies and to us as we think through how to deploy the fund. I want to pick your brain on something. Throughout many years, I think it started when Y Combinator started to be, you know, famous accelerator in Silicon Valley. So people from all over the country or the world started to come to San Francisco from, let's say, from the bottom. And they wanted to start their companies here with, you know, accessing all other investors, all other fellow entrepreneurs to be a hot tech startup just because like every other company like cool companies, Facebook, Snapchat, all the companies started here. So do you think is it still hot in here to, you know, find something? Or is it more that we can see from other parts of the world, these startups can be hot as 
they can be in here. I think you can start a company anywhere. And I think COVID has sort of dispelled this rumor that you have to be in person to be effective. You know, we've all been working now for five months. No one's been in person once. So I, look, I think there is something to Silicon Valley, right? You do have to, if you want to raise money in a traditional VC fund way, you have to come here and do a roadshow. But more and more funds like mine are coming online, where if you join our fund, you don't really need to know everyone in Silicon Valley because we do, right? So, you know, we can we can definitely help get you the right people or the right information. I think that COVID to some degree is dispelling the rumor that in order to start a successful software company, you have to be in San Francisco. I don't think that's true. I know many successful companies that were not started in San Francisco. We have companies in Denver, New York. We have companies in Seattle. We have companies all over the place and start our portfolio that are, are sort of approaching it in a different way. I think the smart founder figures out what they do need from the Valley. What do you need? Who do you need to know? Who do you need access to? And then as you consider your fundraising and how you're going to put your round together, you consider the VCs in that air as well, right? I mean, most founders can be a little picky. Now, that's not always true. But as you think through, if you have a great idea and you've got some great execution beginning, you don't need to move to San Francisco. San Francisco is expensive. It's not an easy place to live. You know, I grew up there, so it's, it's a little weird for me because it's kind of my hometown. So I still see it through my, you know, seven-year-old eyes sometimes. But when I look at San Francisco, it's not a terribly easy place to live or move to right now, given the price and what's going on. So no, I don't think you need to be in Silicon Valley to start a successful software company. I think you need to assess what you need out of Silicon Valley and then be very you know, disciplined in going to get it. If you need a giant VC firm like Sequoia or Excel to back you because that somehow is going to validate your product in the market more quickly, then have a very targeted approach toward trying to get one of those. If you're trying to get a company which will help you build and think through how to do different things and give you access to different people, then you should go sort of approach a fund like that. But I, I do not believe you have to be in San Francisco to create a successful software company at all. What do you think about offices? Do you think that we'll be working remotely till the end of the world? Or do you think that at some point, if there will be enough resources or, you know, social distance in the offices that we can go back in a way that like, what's your take on that? Oh, it's such a hard time right now, Taha, isn't it? It's so hard to, you can't even plan tomorrow, let alone a year from now. It's such a strange moment in the world's history. I don't think we're going to go back to the office for a while. Um, I think some people have particular circumstances that may drive them back to the office yeah. sooner and companies should try to be accessible mm -hmm. and accountable to those folks and try to create an environment for them. But look, I mean, Google said this week, they're not going back until July of next year. That's a, that's a long time. You know, that's a whole year from now. So I think this new way of working is going to be the new normal. And I think even as the vaccine comes online and, and hopefully herd immunity runs across the globe and this terrible disease dissipates a bit, there will be people that will choose to continue to work like this. And I honestly, you know, this is, this is why we need technology to help us facilitate this kind of interaction and why Zoom has had, you know, just Zoomed up. It's a great name. He, Eric chose the right name, right? But um, 
But I, I don't think we're going to be back in the office anytime soon. Not on mass. Maybe a few people here and there. But in general, I think people are going to keep staying home for a while. I want to ask you something. So we mostly know about the companies that venture capital firms invested and the reasons, but not too much about the companies that they were in their deal flow and they didn't invest. So I believe that other than those 16 companies, let's say that you raise money with, there will be more than, let's say, I don't know the number, but like a hundred X more than deal flow on your mails or on your uh, spreadsheets going along like lots of startups. So what was the main reasons that you see that you, you see that you say we are not going to invest in that company? Like, is there any like kind of a, you know, majority of a reason that you can say that, yes, this occurred so much and we didn't want to invest in those kind of startups? Right. Well, I think then having a good, strong thesis is really important. So for Malin and I, it was only enterprise B2B SaaS, right? So all of a sudden, every time someone contacted me and said, hey, invest in my lipstick company, I was like, yeah, no thanks. I, lipstick's not my jam. I don't do that. So I think venture funds with a strong thesis like that tend to be able to run through their deal flow a little bit more effectively than the rest of it. Look, there have been companies I've loved that we've had to pass on, and that may be that they were too early, or, you know, we saw too much competition in the space. There were too many other people that were trying to do something similar, even though we loved the founder and we thought the idea was interesting. Um, I think what's also different about our fund is we run it like a company. You know, we're, we're Malin and I are operating executives too. We often have this joke that we are like the accidental VC, right? Or the reluctant VC. It was not really what we intended. It was more what sort of happened because of the change we wanted to see in the industry. But, you know, I also, you know, if, if, a, if a founder doesn't pitch well, it's hard to get excited about their company. And I do often see founders that are sort of stumbling along and don't have as much conviction as I would like to see. And then I see other founders that just came up with an idea, quit their job two days ago. And I'm like, how much money can I give you? Right. So, there is a little bit of a gut instinct to all of this as well, which is why I think my training on the app exchange has proven so valuable to me in making these investment decisions. But I also, you know, having a strong thesis that you can hold to you know, product market fit, repeatable revenue, founding team we believe in. We have a list of sort of things that we check off and, and sometimes we don't, some of our investments don't meet all of those. But, you know, they may have a founder that we absolutely love and completely believe in and has a vision for building a company and a product that we know we can help them with. So, you know, it's a lot of how does the founder, what are we thinking? How is the product? And then also from my perspective, can we help them? I'm, this isn't a huge fund. It's a, you know, it's over $50 million fund, but in Silicon Valley, that's not a huge fund. So for us, we're not just throwing money around. We're giving money to people that we believe we can actually help and that we can have them, you know, help them have an impact as they create their company. I don't love it when companies tell me they have no block, nothing's in their way to success. And I think sometimes founders are trying, you know, they're, they're working so hard and I love founders. I think they're, you know, they're, they're fabulous. They're not afraid to step out and do something interesting. But oftentimes a founder, I think because they feel like they need to appear like everything's perfect all the time, like I'll have a conversation with them, be like, oh, that's not a problem. 
no, I'm not worried about that. No, no. And when I hear too much of that, I start to worry because starting a company is difficult. And if you have a good idea, someone else probably has it too, right? Or is thinking about some way of doing it. So being cavalier about the competitive nature of the environment you're walking into often is a pretty big turnoff for me. I'd rather an honest answer where someone says, yeah, I'm really scared about, I'm not scared, but I'm worried about how we create the demand side here. I don't know how customers will think about adopting this set of features. I'd much rather have an honest conversation with a founder in the midst of a pitch about the challenges they see and how they're thinking about navigating those challenges versus I got it, I got it, everything's fine, everything's fine. So, I mean, that's kind of a generic one, but I do hear more and more in pitches founders trying to act like they have it all together. And if you had it all together, then you wouldn't be asking me for money, probably. So last but not least, what, what's your plan for the lasting months for the year? So are you going to invest in more startups or is there any unannounced uh, investments you invested, by the way? There are a couple coming, <laughs> yeah. We did a little work this this summer. I mean, we will continue to invest. Um, you know, we, we're our fund is still pretty new. It's just eight months old. It, it's hard for me to believe that because it feels like I've been doing it for a long time and I love it. But we'll continue to invest. We also, our fund is a bit different in that we're really trying to create a community around our fund. So yes, there are LPs and there are portfolio companies, but we've spent a lot of time trying to engage other people that are interested in learning about investing, learning about venture capital, learning about technology companies. So we've created a fairly wide community around our fund, and we'd like to continue to evolve that and provide value to that community. I think the more people, mm -hmm. you know, venture is a pretty locked game, right? It's it, for a long time, it's like no one knows what's happening. It's not really that complicated, right? It just needs to be discussed a little bit more openly so that people feel like it's something they can partake in. So demystifying venture capital is a big part of what we're trying to do for the community that surrounds our fund and the people within our fund. So you'll see more things like that coming out of us, more partnerships around trying to do that more effectively with some bigger VCs and some bigger software companies, but really working together to try to make venture feel much more accessible to the common person. You don't have to be yes. a 25-year software executive like I am to get into venture. You know, you just don't. You can you can have a little money and want to start trying and there are a lot of venues to try that out and a lot of good people in the venture community that will help you think through that. So I feel like that's part of my mission and Malin's mission as well, the mission of Operator Collective is to really demystify venture a bit and make it easier for everyone to feel like this is an investment option. The same way people think about buying, you know, they buying a house or buying a stock or buying a bond. I'm not saying everyone should run into venture. That's not what I'm saying, but there should be enough education and enough resource out there. So it is a viable alternative for different people as they think about ways to invest their money. All right. That was a great chat, Leila. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, awesome. I had so much fun. And you're Turkish. That's the best. You're like my people. I'm very pleased. It was wonderful. We came to the end of this episode of 415 Stories. You can follow Leila on Twitter at Leila Seka. And please let me know what you think about the podcast via Twitter at 415 Stories. And you can also subscribe to the newsletter on 415.substack.com. And thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.